Well, I don't know if I introduced myself before. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here. So if you are brand new, special welcome to you. We're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so if you've got your programs, I want to open them up. There's a green and white sheet inside that we use every week for our time of teaching. And you'll definitely want to pull those out. And then uh, if you guys are ready to go, uh, I'm all set. You guys you ready to go? All right, let's go. Father, we're just excited to be here at the, at the, at the start of a brand new year. A whiteboard is clean. Our future is clean, and we just want to enter in strong. God, we want to come under your leadership this year. We want you to be our leader, our true king. Uh, we want to come under that leadership and be led well. And so today, as we launch this, this new uh, series, as we launch a new year, we pray you'd meet us, you'd speak powerfully, both to us as a church, to us individually. We'd go out uh, with a sense of direction and uh, passion and renewed vision for the future that you have for us uh, in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing a, a new series, or we're starting a brand new series called Jesus the, Cru- uh, the Crucified King. And for those of you who are, are new here, this is actually uh, the third part of like a trilogy of series. Think of it like The Hobbit. Uh, and, the, and our trilogy is, is, is on uh, the life and teaching of Jesus uh, as seen through the eyes of one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Mark, and he wrote a gospel, kind of a, an account of the life and teaching of Jesus. Mark was a close personal friend of the Apostle Peter, and so he, he's basing his account on Peter's firsthand experiences uh, with Jesus. And so if you've been here this series, uh, the first two series were called uh, uh, Jesus the King and the call to Jesus the Call to Follow. In fact, there on your note sheet, if you look at the very first page, you have this, this section called Jesus the King and the Call to Follow. Those are actually the two separate names of the first two series. And so in the, in the very first series, uh, what we saw happen is that Jesus launches his ministry. He bursts on the scene in the northern part of Israel, up in the Galilee. And he has this amazing message, his claim, that the kingdom of God that has been long promised by the prophets for over a thousand years, this time when Yahweh, the God of Israel, would come back to Israel, break into time and space, kind of rescue them from their enemies, and, and, and kind of usher in this new era of the human race, kind of a golden age, Messiah would come, wrongs turned to right, uh, that uh, just kind of all, all things made new, that that era was actually near, that that, that new era was, was about to start, the kingdom of God is near. And then not only did he make that great, great claim, he backed it up, because wherever he went, uh, the power of the kingdom followed him. So wherever he went, like the power of the coming age was breaking in the here and now. So wherever he went, he's healing the sick. He's calming seas. He's turning water into wine. He's manipulating molecules. He's multiplying bread. He is uh, freeing people that are demon-possessed from, from their oppression. Uh, he's raising the dead. And so, so as, wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom goes. You're seeing like a preview of coming attraction. What's, what's it like when the kingdom comes? What's going to be like this, you see? And so the big question in that first series was, who is Jesus? Because Jesus, what he said is the kingdom of God is near. What he did not say is he's the king. In fact, he kind of kept that under wraps. Uh, And so when you get to chapter 8, when we got to the end of the first series, he actually asked his followers, his disciples, who do men say that I am? And if you're here, you may remember this. They said, well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're like Jeremiah. You're a prophet from the past like Jeremiah or or, or Elijah. Uh, Some say you're John the Baptist. Coming back from the dead, but catch this, no one was saying, you're the Christ, you're the king of Israel. No one's saying that. And so, but, but that day, Jesus turns to his men, he says, but who do you say that I am? And, and the Holy Spirit enlightened their eyes, finally, and they finally get it, and Peter says, you are the Christ, which remember means the king, you are the Christ, the son of God. And so by the end of chapter, in the end of the first series, we realize who Jesus is, but Jesus says, let's keep that quiet for now. And so we went into the second series, and it was called The Call to Follow. In that second series, uh, the question is not who is Jesus, we now know that. The question is, why has he come, and what does it look like to follow him? And so, so Jesus begins to share with his men that he's not the Messiah they thought he was going to be, that he has not come to crush the Romans, he has come to be crushed by the Romans. He's going to be arrested, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be executed, and then he's going to rise from the dead, whatever that means, they don't really understand that. And he tells them, if you want to follow me, that that you need to be ready to die too. And he called them to a life that we talked, these three key words we talked from the second series. He called them to a life that was countercultural, very different from the world around them. He called them to a life that's radical, be willing to take up your cross and die. He called them to a life that was future-focused, living this life for the next life. 
Well, today as we move into the third series, Jesus the Crucified King, it's the fulfillment of all this journey. Because today, remember in the second series, Jesus told his men three times, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be executed, I'm going to write. They didn't get it, they, they, they still think that he's going to rule, but, but he's told them. And today, we're going to, as we move in this third series, we're going to see the fulfillment of those prophecies. That today, we're going to watch in this third series as he comes in this last week of his life. And this whole last series is just going to cover the last six or seven days of his life, right? So we're going to spend like six months, the next seven days of his life. And so, so today, what, what's happening is we watch the fulfillment of his prophecy that he's going to be arrested, executed, and rise, which is going to change everything. And so as we open the scene today, here's our opening scene, uh, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem several times before. Mark doesn't tell us that, but the Gospel of John does. But this is his last time. It's right on schedule. This week he's going to die, and he has to die during Passover week. This is what God has planned. And so, so Jesus is heading uh, to Jerusalem. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, it's surrounded by mountains or hills. And on the east side, there's this famous mountain. It's called the Mount of Olives. And it's about two miles journey from, you know, the Mount of Olives down to the city, down to the Kidron Valley and up to the city. And so Jesus is approaching. Uh, there's a couple of villages up there at the time, Bethany and Bethphage. He stayed with, at Bethany before. His friends uh, Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha uh, uh, lived there. Uh, about four, you know, recently he's raised Lazarus from the dead, which has caused this real tremor to run through the city. But it's, it's Passover week. And here's what I want you to catch. Passover week in Israel is, at the time was huge. Like we have no conception. Uh, Passover is, was one of the, the three big, what we call, pilgrim feasts. Uh, there was three feasts that, according to the law of Moses, that every Jewish male was to attend every year. One was Passover. Uh, Passover looked to the past. It looked to the past where God rescued the nation from slavery and bondage in Egypt and formed a nation under Moses. And it looked to the future when Messiah would come, like a second Moses would come, and rescue them again from their current oppressors. So at the time of Jesus, Passover is an extremely patriotic time. It's an eight-day festival. It starts with the one-day Passover, then it goes to seven days, a Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so, so catch this, this is like a built-in vacation every year. That what happens, if you're, you're going to travel like Jesus had done this every year growing up, that, that, uh, that his family would travel from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. And it's about 90 miles, and so it takes several days. Then you get there for the Feast of Passover, it's a day, then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's like seven days. So it's like three or, three or four days down, seven or eight days there, three or four days back. You've got almost three weeks, right? And you're doing this every year, and you do it three times a year. And so uh, a lot of vacation in ancient Israel. Anyway, it was an awesome time. It's a time for family. It's a time for friends. It's a time for feasting, for dancing. It's a time just for, it's just great to worship, to go to the temple. It's an awesome time. And it's a very patriotic time. And because it's so patriotic and because there's so many revolutions in Israel at this time, the, the fortress, uh, the, the Roman uh, garrison there, would bring extra troops during these festivals because they're always afraid of a coup. They're always afraid of a, a revolt, you know, breaking out. And so the pilgrims, as they're making their way to Jerusalem, they're, they're coming up these hills, they're coming up to the city. Uh, Josephus described the temple, the ancient historian Josephus, first, uh, first century uh, Jewish historian, he, he described the temple. You know, the, the temple, remember, was huge. It's a temple complex is, uh, you know, like surrounded by this huge, you know, stone wall. It's, like a, it's more like a fortress. It's three football fields on one side, five football fields on the other, 35 acres of campus. In the, in the middle of it is the temple, six stories tall, built with marble, covered with gold on top. Josephus says that when you'd approach this city, it would look like a snow-capped mountain glistening in the sun. As the pilgrims are coming up, they would be singing the Hallel Psalms which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Psalms that look back on God's deliverance, on God's goodness, on His promise to one day deliver them again. And so it's in this very patriotic season that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Now remember who's, who's, who's traveling with Him. He's traveling with a crowd. Many of these people have been with Him uh, since the year before, at Passover a year before when He had fed the 5,000 and they wanted to make Him king at that point. Uh, many have come from Jericho. Remember at the end of the second series, we saw him heal the blind man, Bartimaeus, in Jericho. People are going crazy. Son of David. Patriotic uh, messianic fever is already beginning. 
Uh, he's made that 15, 20-mile trip up to Jerusalem now, I mean, to, uh, to Bethany. He's been there for, you know, a few days. Now comes the time for him to enter into Jerusalem. There's people that have seen him heal Bartimaeus. People have seen him heal Lazarus, raise him from the dead. Uh, the city is talking about him. The, the population is swelling. According to Josephus, not everyone will agree with this, but according to Josephus, his claim is that during Passover season, there would be three million people in Jerusalem. The city was absolutely packed. According to Josephus, according to temple records, it would take for Passover, there would be 265,000 lambs slaughtered for Passover. The blood would run uh, down the Kedron Valley like a river uh, coming out of, out of, out of the, the temple. Right? So, so, uh, so anyway, so this is the scene. And, and so Jesus is coming in, the city is packed, there's no room at the inn, people are camped out on the hillsides, they're staying in lodgings out in the surrounding villages, uh, sky-high patriotism, Roman authorities on high alert against the revolt, and it's into this situation that Jesus is going to come on this last day, of his, uh, last week of his life. And this is what's going to happen this last week. Up to this point, Jesus has played his cards very close to his chest in terms of who he is and why he's come. He's talked to his disciples, remember, that they realize he's the Christ. They, they have the wrong conception of what that's going to be. They still think he's going to kick out the Romans and bring in the, bring in the kingdom right now. But, but he's talked to his disciples. But remember back in chapter 8, he told them to keep it quiet. He said, don't tell anyone. So he's played his card because they have the wrong ideas of what the Messiah is going to be. And also catch this, if he starts, the word gets out that he's Messiah, it's going to bring Rome down on him. He might be executed just like John the Baptist was. That can't happen. That's not God's timing. He's not supposed to die this week in Passover. So he's kept it, he's played his cards very close to his chest. Right? So no one really knows who he is. But this week, starting today, on this Sunday of the last week of his life, He's going to begin to, like, like a poker player, begin to lay down his cards one at a time. And every day, he's going to lay down, uh, this week he's going to lay down more cards, revealing in both subtle but profound ways who he is and why he's come. And so with that as an intro, let's jump into chapter 11 and see what happens. Mark chapter 11. So we're picking it up at, at uh, chapter 11 and verse 1. So as they approach uh, Jerusalem and they come to Bethphage and Bethany. So those are two villages about two miles outside of uh, Jerusalem, uh, right before you hit the Mount of Olives. And it says, uh, and so they're at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sends two of his disciples, doesn't say which ones. He says, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there. Now Matthew's account, he tells us this was a colt of a donkey. Uh, and this is very significant. Because what Jesus is doing as he lays down this first card on this Sunday is he is going to be intentionally fulfilling an ancient prophecy. And it's the prophecy of Zechariah. Back in Zechariah chapter 9, there's a prophecy that when your king comes, when the great king comes, that he will ride on the colt of a donkey. And so Jesus is very clearly staging this. Now, whether his, how much his disciples or the crowds understood is really open to conjecture. Uh, John will tell us later on today, John will tell us in his gospel that they really didn't understand the full significance of what was happening when Jesus did this until after he'd returned to heaven. But so Jesus is very intentionally staging this event. So he's going to send these men into this, into this village to, to bring back a colt. And so he says... Uh, uh, Go in the village ahead, just so you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there. No one's ever ridden, so it's unbroken. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So I don't really know whether Jesus had prearranged this, or this was just going to be kind of the Jesus magic spell. But uh, anyway, uh, in verse 4, it says, So they went and they found the colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. And uh, as they untied it, some people standing there, and Luke's gospel tells us the owners, they said to him, uh, what are you doing untying that colt? And they just answered as Jesus told them. They said, the Lord needs it, and we'll bring it back later. And they said, okay, good with us. And so, uh, you know, yes, master, whatever. 
So uh, anyway, verse 7, so they, they bring the colt to Jesus, they throw their cloaks over it, so they're kind of making a makeshift saddle, and he sits on it, and so uh, now they're going to begin this, this kind of two-mile or whatever it is uh, trip down the Mount of Olives, and as, as, as many people spread their cloaks on the road, so they're, take, they're excited. These, this crowd, really is, remember, remember the city is packed, most of the city is probably not involved in this event. If they were involved in this event, the Roman authorities probably would have shut it down. So most of the city's not involved. So the crowd that's involved is, is a mixture of people. And there are people that have been traveling with Jesus, probably some people that have seen him heal Bartimaeus, probably people that have seen his miracles in Galilee. There's sure lo- for sure localized people that have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead just a few days before. And there's people from Jerusalem coming out who've heard of his fame and want to meet him, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a mixed crowd, but it's people that are interested in Jesus, heard of Jesus, and as we're going to see, they're pretty much convinced that he is the king of Israel, that there's, he's done enough stuff, and they're, they're ready for him to unleash his power on Rome and to bring in the kingdom of God. That's what's, what's happening. And so what, they, they are excited, and they're just like, whatever you need. And so like when a, when a Roman general or a conqueror or a king would come, sometimes as an act of honor, you take off your clothes, like a red carpet treatment. We're going you know, to throw down our clothes. So you don't have to, your feet don't have to touch the ground, that sort of a thought. And so... So they're going to kind of, they're taking off their, their outer clothes, they're throwing them down. Uh, what we're going to see is there's going to be people that are going out and, and uh, kind of uh, cutting down uh, bushes and trees. They're going to be kind of creating a, a walkway for Jesus. What's interesting is that in the Gospel of John, we're told that they were actually cutting down palm branches. And, and this is very, uh, very interesting because about 200 years before this event, Israel was not under Roman rule, they were under Syrian rule at the time. And there was a horrendous king named Antiochus Epiphanes on the throne of Syria. And it was his goal to root out all Judaism from the land. And so he made it against the law as a Jew to circumcise your sons. He made it against the law to read Torah. He made it against the law to uh, worship in the same ways in the temple. Uh, he'd made it uh, against the law to practice much of the Jewish law. And so what had happened is that he was trying to destroy Judaism. And so what, what happened is, of course, a lot of people, just on pain of death, they, they, would, they would compromise. Uh, because, like, if you circumcised your kid, he would skin you alive. I mean, this was, was brutal stuff. He, one of the things he had done is he had got into the, ta- uh, the temple and he had desecrated it by sacrificing a pig on the altar. So, so, of course, most of the people probably kind of gave in to this. They, they didn't want to lose their lives, right? But there was a, a, a small group of freedom fighters led by this one family. And, and the, the head of the band was named Judas Maccabeus. And, and so he started, he launched what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And it was a grassroots revolt, and God blessed it. And they drove out the conqueror from the land. And when Judas Maccabeus came as the conqueror into Jerusalem again for the first time, when he came to cleanse the temple, which interestingly Jesus is going to do next week, but interestingly, as he comes into the temple to cleanse it, uh, the people come to meet him with palm branches uh, cutting, making away. And so it's this very patriotic time looking for the king, this thing of palm branches, kingship, messiahship. Uh, it was so big that during the Maccabean era, Israel was actually minting their own money, and on their coins, there would be palms on the, on the, on the, there as a symbol of their freedom and their, uh, their, their own authority. And so, so this is a, what I want you to catch, this is a very patriotic scene. Like probably any scene you've seen in Sunday school of Palm Sunday, you need to wipe out of your mind. This is not what you grow up with Palm Sunday this is a military revolt in the making. This is a king coming into his kingdom, and the people convinced he's going to take it to Rome, and they are taking off their clothes, and they are getting palm branches, and they, they're seeing it as the coming of the king. And you see that because what, what they say. So as you come to uh, uh, verse 8, many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed, here's what they're shouting, Hosanna, which is a, comes out of a Hebrew word for save us. And, it says, and then they're quoting from Psalm 18. And catch this, Psalm 18 
is one of the Hallel Psalms, number 113 to 118, that the pilgrims would recite and sing as they would come on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And Psalm 18 is about the coming of this great king in their past who rescued Israel, who'd been rejected by the spiritual leaders of the nation, but actually became the, the, the chief stone that the building was built on. And so it's a psalm that became a messianic psalm about the coming of the ultimate king. And so here they go. They sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting from Psalm 118. And they said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, what we're calling the kingdom of God. This time where God's going to break into time and space and turn all wrongs to right. And they're seeing that as a military thing. And so they're saying, Hosanna in the highest. And so they're, they're coming in, uh, very charged scene, patriotic, Roman troops on high alert, haven't heard of this yet. Probably most of the city doesn't know what's going on. But we do know from Matthew's gospel that once it gets in the city, uh, it probably stops. But once he gets to the city, word is out that something big is going on. And talk, the city is full of talk. Who is this guy? What's going on? And they say, it's Jesus of Nazareth. So the city's a bus, right? So Jesus comes in, and now he's going to do something very interesting. He's going to walk through the city, which is going to take him a while. He's going to go up to the huge temple complex. He's going to walk in, and he's, been, he's going to begin to do some reconnaissance. You know how Costco is? They're always moving things around. You know what I'm saying? He's going to do some reconnaissance. He wants to, find, he wants to get the lay of the land Hey, how's this thing laid out for tomorrow? Because tomorrow he's coming back and he's staging a violent demonstration. There's going to be a fulfillment of another messianic prophecy from Malachi 3 that when God comes, the Lord will come to cleanse his temple. So what I want you to catch, as we enter in, you need to wipe out kind of most of the things you probably know about Palm Sunday. We need to wipe it out. What this is, is Jesus is coming in and with this demonstration, as he, as he next week goes in, as with this demonstration, the next week as he goes in the temple and tears things up, Jesus is challenging the religious and political structure of their society. And what, by doing this, he is lighting a fuse that's going to burn all week long brighter until it gets to Thursday night where it blows up and he is arrested and then he's executed the next day. And catch this. When he's every day of this week, Jesus is going to be laying down another card, another card, another card, slowly revealing more and more of who he really is. And he's kept it under wraps until this point. It's too early to be arrested. He's slowly laying down the cards until Thursday night, in the, or actually Friday morning, the early morning, when he's arrested, he's taken before the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin that the question will be asked him there, are you the Christ? Remember, that means the king of Israel. Are you the Christ? And for the first time in the gospel of Mark, Jesus will say, I am. And once he says that, his fate is sealed. They will take him to the Roman government. They will charge him with high treason against Caesar. And, they, and on that last day, he'll be brought out, here is your king. And the charge against, his, against him as he's hung on the cross is the king of the Jews. He will be crucified for the claim of being the king. And so today, we enter into a series and into a journey this last week of Jesus' life. We're going to watch him day by day, confronting his opponents, answering their questions, asking his own, doing some powerful teaching, and then coming finally to do what he came to earth to do, as we learned in chapter in series two, is to be a ransom for many. And then he's going to rise. It's going to change everything. So it's going to be an incredible series as we together watch Jesus walk through the last week of his life, and we take it step by step, week by week, and watch it unfold as the fuse is burning and getting brighter and brighter, leading towards his death and execution. Now, what I want to do today, the time that we have as we kind of watch this series is I want to start with just a couple uh, kind of big picture observations, principles about who Jesus is, this last week of his life. Uh, and, and then I want to come back at the end, and for us as we start into 2014, ask a couple questions about how we relate to what we've seen happen today. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called The Coming of the King, Two Takeaways. Let's start there. And the first one is, is the most obvious. It's one we've talked about a lot in Mark, but, but now is the time to unpack it at a greater level. And the first takeaway is that, that I want you to miss is that Jesus is the king. 
Uh, this is who he is. This is who he came to be. This is part of his core identity. We talk about Jesus being king. It's not peripheral. It's not sidebar. This is part of who he is at his core. He is a ruler. He is uh, an authority. He is the king. And this is what uh, Mark and what the other gospel writers and what Jesus want us to catch. This is why Jesus went and said, go get the donkey, find the colt, bring him back. Jesus is intentionally setting up, staging a prophetic fulfillment because in Zechariah it said, behold, your king comes riding to you on the colt of a donkey. And so Jesus is beginning to announce his true identity. He's hidden in the past. He's beginning to announce it, that he is a king. Now, how much the, his men understood that day? Again, probably not so much. There in your note sheet from John chapter 12, which is the passage where, uh, that records the, uh, the grand entry in John's gospel, he says at first, his disciples did not understand all this. They, they didn't understand all what was going on, what Jesus was doing, and why the colt, and why riding down. Uh, only after Jesus was glorified, in other words, uh, died, rose, went to heaven, returned to heaven, did they uh, realize that these things had been written about him, like Zechariah, for example, and that, that he'd done uh, these things to him. And so he said, John says, hey, at the time, we didn't all get it. At the time, patriotic. At the time, messianic. We had this fervor. It was exciting. We thought Jesus was going to come and he was going to tear into the Romans. We were excited about that. We didn't really... We didn't really understand all that was going on. We didn't really understand the significance of this cult thing. We just kind of, we hadn't put that all together yet. But afterwards, looking back, now we understand what was going on, that Jesus was announcing his kingship. And so, so Jesus today is beginning to help us understand who he is at a new level. Here's what I want you to catch. Mark has been building up to this all through the gospel. I want you to take you back to the very first verse we started a year ago. Back in Mark 1, there in your note sheet, this is how Mark introduces Jesus to us. He says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you were here then, we talked about how every word in this introduction is power, it's like power punch. Every word is full of meaning. And we don't have time to break that all down again. But I want to point out one of the words. And that's the word Christ. And we've talked about this kind of many times in this series, but I want to highlight again that remember, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. We often think it's like your first name Jesus, last name Christ. It's not. Uh, that's what it's become, and it kind of became that even over the course of the New Testament. But when it started off, the name Christ is a title. It's a, it's a title. The word Christ is a title. The word Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. They both mean the anointed one, the great king. And so at the very first verse of Mark, Mark says, I want to tell you a story. Let me introduce you to this man. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He's the king. So as outsiders looking in, as readers of the gospel, we know from the very first verse who Jesus is. But here's what I want you to catch. The people in the story didn't have a clue. So, so it's much like, you know, if you've gotten to a Shakespeare play or something like that, where a narrator comes out and he kind of sets the stage and tells you what's going on behind the scenes. And so as an audience, we know more than the, than the characters in the story. Like we, from the outside, we know what's going on more than they do. And so that's exactly what's happening in the Gospel of Mark. As we go through, we know who he is from the beginning, but they don't know. This is why when we get to chapter 8, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? No one says Christ. There's no rumor going around. He's the king of Israel, the Messiah. No one's saying that. People are saying prophet. They're saying Elijah. They're saying Jeremiah. They're saying uh, John the Baptist. Come back, But no one's saying Christ. And that's why it's such a, it's a pivotal moment in the book because Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus said, hey, you didn't figure that out on your own. My, my father revealed that to you. And because a turning point in the book. Up to that point, even his disciples didn't know who he was. You see, catch this. Jesus, when he came, said the kingdom is near. But I've not pointed this out yet. I've got to wait until now. But he never said, 
and I'm the king. And even after he reveals to his disciples on that day at Caesarea Philippi in Mark chapter 8 who he is, remember what he tells them right away. Yeah, you're right. Don't tell anybody. Let's keep it our little secret. It wasn't the time. They had too many wrong ideas of what it meant to be a Messiah. He announces Messiahship. The power of Rome is going to come down. To kill him, it's not time for him to die. Let's keep it. But here at the beginning of this week, like I've said today, Jesus is now beginning to lay down his cards. One at a time. In ways they fully didn't understand at the time, and yet they sense something is going on. Something big is going on. And today is his first card. As he rides into, it's not about what he says, it's what he does. As he rides into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, he's intentionally announcing who he is. That he's the king. Number two. The second big picture principle that's going to kind of reign over this whole week is that they, are, they weren't ready for a king. And this is so fascinating to me. Um, the nation, his followers, the people in the crowd, they weren't really ready for a king. They thought they were ready. I mean, for the last year, ever since a year before, the path, which was Passover a year before, is where Jesus fed the 5, 10, 15,000 people with the five loaves and two fishes. Remember, back in that event, back in Mark 6, that after that event, they wanted him to make him king. They tried to force him to be king. He refused. But so, so we've seen that they wanted to be king. His disciples, they think they're going to Jerusalem to be king. They, the crowds think he's going to be king. I mean, they are going crazy over this. I mean, when was the last time you took off your clothes and threw them in front of, in front of somebody? Right? They're going crazy. They're like, whoa, whatever, you know, take it off, whoa, you know, they're running out, cutting down, you got a, you know, you got a buck knife, whatever, you know, like they're, they're cutting down uh, bushes, they're running back, I mean, this is an exciting moment, and they're going crazy, and someone in the crowd starts off, that's the first one, we don't know who it was, someone says, Hosanna, you know, they, so they've been singing this song, the Hallel song all week long, and Hosanna, and it's like, yeah, that's right, Hosanna, God save us, and, and they begin, they begin quoting this Psalm 118, this Hallel Psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is he, there's blessing Jesus, our Savior, our Deliverer, our, our King who's coming like Judas Maccabeus to, to, to free us again, and they're, they're kind of worshiping to the point where there's some Pharisees in the crowd, and they're saying, hey, tell your men to knock it off, this is like, they're like giving you too much praise, it's inappropriate, and Jesus says, hey, if I tell them to knock it off, the stones are going to start yelling out. And so they're excited. And what we're going to see all week long is they're excited about Jesus. And what's going to happen is, you know, every day he's going to go out to Bethany at night, spend the night, and then go back to temple courts early in the morning, be teaching, healing in the temple. Every day his political and religious opponents, we're going to see this. They're going to come every day and they're going to, they're, they've been thinking for days on how can we trap him? How can we get him to say something that will either undercut his credibility to the crowds so it stops this revolution from, from continuing, or we'll get him to say something that will get him in trouble with the Roman authorities so we can bring him up on charges. And so every day, his critics are going to be coming and they're going to be saying, okay, what about, they're going to send, dip, the, the Sanhedrin's going to send groups to come and get him. Jesus is going to outwit them every time because he's brilliant. You get out with them every time. They've been thinking for days or maybe a month, like, how can we trap him? They throw it out there, and he turns it on them in a moment. It's brilliant. And every time he does, guess what? The crowds love it. The crowds like Jesus, right? He's come in to the praise. Remember, it's three, if there's three million or however many million, it's big. Not everyone's involved in this. You know, you can't picture a little city and, you know, a thousand people there. Like I said, not everyone knows what's going on in this big city. But there's a lot to do. And, and they are all into Jesus, and they're worshiping Jesus, and they're singing his praises, and they're quoting scripture, and they're loving him all week long as he's outwitting the religious leaders. But at the end of the week on Friday, when Caesar, I mean, when, when Pilate brings out Jesus, 
beaten to a pulp, bloody mess, blood streaming down his face, intestines perhaps showing, got it with a, a, a purple robe on, right, a scepter in his hand, and he comes out and Pilate says, behold, you're king. All of a sudden, Jesus wasn't the king they were anticipating. All of a sudden, it all changed. They thought he was going to kick out the Romans. He's being crushed by Rome. See, they thought they were ready for a king. They weren't ready for the king God sent them. They wanted a king of their own making. They wanted a king like Moses who would multiply loaves and feed them and raise their standard of living. They wanted a king who would kick out Rome. That's the king they wanted. They didn't want the king in the purple robe. And so the crowd said, said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Sunday, say, crucify him now because they thought he was one kind of king. He's a different kind of king. We're not interested in that kind of king. You see, they thought they were ready for a king, but they weren't. And we're going to see that unpacked all week long. Okay, so that's that's the story that's going to play out. Jesus this week coming, laying down his cards one day at a time, who he is. He's the king. We're going to watch the crowd supporting him, and then they're not ready for a king. We're going to watch that all turn. Now, as we go into 2014, uh, I want to take this message. I want to take what we've learned, and I, I want to ask a couple questions. As we stand at the, at the, the verge, at the edge of a brand new year, whiteboard. Why, you know, what's God going to write, uh, write in your life this year? We talked about this last week. What, what's the story of your life he's going to write this year? We want to be ready for a new year. So a couple questions. There in your note sheet, section It's called The Coming of a King, Two Questions. And and here's the questions I have for you. Number one, the first question is, are you ready for the king? As we go into 2014, are you ready for the king in your life? Israel wasn't ready. They thought they were ready, but they weren't ready. The question is, are you ready for the king in your life, 2014? I want to take you back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus first bursts on the stage, first announced the kingdom of God's coming, and I want to take you back to how the story starts. If you go back there, Jesus launches his ministry, and if you look at your note sheet, chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15, this is how Mark summarizes the announcement Jesus makes as he launches his ministry. Jesus went into Galilee, he's proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel, he says, the time has come, there's the time prophesied by the prophets for a thousand years. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Notice he doesn't announce he's king yet. He says the kingdom of God is near. And he says, says, okay, so in order to get in on this, what he's saying is that this kingdom that's been prophesied for a thousand years, it's very near. It's here. It's starting. And he says, and to get in on this kingdom, you need to do two things. Help me out. What are those two things? Let's say it together. First one's what? Repent and believe. Now, let's talk about, remember, repent is not a religious word at this point. Like, we think of repent as a religious word. Repent, not like, if a man back in that time said, I was going to marry Dorothy, but then I repented of it. Right? Like, ah, that was a bad move. Changed my mind, right? I used to go to Best Buy. I now go to Target. I repented. You see, that, that, was, that repentance wasn't a religious word. So repent means you're going one direction, you're changing direction. You, you realize that was a mistake. The word itself in Greek, remember, means is, is the word meta noeo. Meta means against, noeo means to think. Meta noeo means to think against. In other words, to change the way we think. I used to think this way, now I think that. It's not a religious word. I changed my mind. I was heading one direction, I'm heading another direction. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God is coming. God is coming to establish his reign on planet earth. And to get in, you have to change the way you think. You have to come under his leadership as your true king. You used to live for your own life, now you're going to come in and live under his leadership. You need to repent. And And secondly, you have to believe. You have to trust me. You have to trust what I'm telling you is true. You have to trust I know what I'm talking about. 
You have to trust it really is happening. You have to trust that you really can enter. You have to trust that I will lead you and teach you how the kingdom works. And so to become a part of the kingdom, we have to repent, change the way we think, and come under his leadership, and then trust him that he's smarter, better, knows more, loves us, is leading to this amazing kingdom. So two things we have to do. As to become a follower of Jesus, you have to repent and believe. It's what you do. But here's what I want you to catch. For us as Christ followers, or by the way, let's call that king followers now, right? Because we often say this. We say, I'm a Christ follower. Okay? Do you realize when you're saying that, you're saying you're a king follower? Okay, so, so as we step into this, the, the Jesus is revealing who he, this is how we enter the kingdom. But here's what I want you to catch. It's not only how we enter the kingdom, it's how we live in the kingdom. What I want you to get is repentance and trust is not something we do once at the start of the journey. This is something we do every day. For the Christ follower, the king follower, repentance and trust is a way of life. Like think back to your last year. If you're a, if you're a king follower today, you should be able to look back at the last year of your life and see ways that you've changed. And if you can't, I have to question whether you're a king follower. Because what I know about our king is our king will always come into our life saying, you used to think this way, you need to think this way. We've seen it all through this series. We saw it in the, last sec- in the second series. He said, Jesus, if you're going to follow me, you need to be countercultural, radical, and future-focused. He said, so you used to think like this. No, now you need to take up your cross and follow me. You used to think like, hey, how do I get the corner office? How do I become the greatest? He said, hey, the path of greatness leads to the door of service. He says to the rich young ruler, if you want to follow me, celebrate. If you're going to follow Jesus, life is a life of repentance and trust. It's constant. He's our shepherd. He's going to constantly come in because he loves us. Say, hey, I know you think life works this way. It doesn't work this way. You've got to change the way you think it's going to go this way. And you need to trust me. You need to trust that I know better, that I love you, that I have your best interests in mind. I've come to get you life. So will you trust me? I know this is hard, but you're going to have to turn. You're going to have to change the way you think, change directions, and trust me. But for that to happen, Jesus has to become our king, not our consultant. You know the difference between a king and a consultant, right? So are you ready for a king? See, the crowds, the crowds that were there on Sunday, they thought they were ready for a king. But when push came to shove, they weren't. They, they wanted a king who came in their life and did everything they wanted him to do, kind of make my life perfect and bless us socially, bless us uh, economically, bless us politically. Yeah, I want that kind of a king. I'll vote for that kind of king. I'll take my clothes off for that kind of king. But they weren't ready to follow the king. So, so they're willing to, hey, sing hosannas and create a red carpet, quote scripture, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. But the irony, they weren't ready for a king. They weren't ready to follow. They weren't ready to repent. They weren't ready to trust. And men and women, we can fall in the same trap. We can think we're a king follower when we're not. It's possible to come here to Rocky Peak and sing the songs and quote the scripture and go to a life group and serve and give and do all that stuff. And to think that we're ready for a king when we're not. The way you find out if you're ready for a king is what you do when he asks you to do something hard. Uh, I love the King Arthur legends. Uh, I love anything like that. Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, I'm in. And uh, anyway, knights, swords, warriors, I'm in. And uh, one of my favorite stories in the King Arthur legends, uh, King Arthur one day calls in this knight his name's Sir Gawain. And uh, Sir Gawain is very famous for his courtesy, for his uh, eloquence, for his manners. Uh, and he calls him in. He says, uh, hey, I've got a job for you. Uh, Lancelot's gone missing again. 
and uh, I need you to go find Lancelot. I, I don't know what happened to him, and he's lost, and he might be in danger, and so I need you to go find Lancelot. So he says, yes, sir, to the king, heads off. And on the way, he stops at a castle. In this particular castle, there's this beautiful lady, and it's Lady Elaine. And he kind of forgets about Lancelot. He's captivated by Elaine. He forgets about his mission, so he stays there. He stays there a really long time until it's long past the time his mission should be due. So he says he's better report back in. So when he comes back to King Arthur. He's going he's to try to spin this, right? He's going to try to spin it. He's going to use his eloquence. He's going to use his courtesy. He's going to use his manners, kind of put a spin on this whole thing. And so he does his magic with, with Arthur. And Arthur calls him out. And Arthur says something powerful and profound. And it's there in your note sheet. What Arthur says to him, he says, Sir Gawain, obedience is the courtesy due to kings. When you come before a king, he's not looking for courtesy. When you come before a king, Gawain, I'm not looking for eloquence. I'm not looking for spit. I'm not looking for hosannas. I'm not looking for blessed is he who comes to the name of the Lord. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for obedience. I sent you after Lancelot. Where's Lancelot? See, obedience is a courtesy due to kings. And so you say, well, how do I know if I'm ready for a king in my life? Very simple. I'll ask you a couple questions. Number one, what's your top priority in life? We have all kinds of priorities. But there's one that rules the rest. For the king follower, the Christ follower, the top priority is to please the king. And if there's any other priority in your life that has more important than pleasing the king, then you're not ready for a king. The second question I'd ask you, in addition to are you ready to figure out are you ready for a king, is what do you do when the king asks you to do something hard? See, anyone can be a king follower on Sunday when the crowds are screaming, everyone's clapping, clothes are coming off. Anyone can be a king follower when it's easy. The question is, what do we do in our life when the king asks us to do something hard? That doesn't make sense to us. That requires sacrifice or surrender. What do we do then? Do we surrender? Do we repent and change the way of thinking and trust him? Or do we do our own thing like Sir Gawain? You see, obedience is a courtesy due to kings. So as we enter into 2014, the slate's clean. We're only a few days in. You can't have screwed it up that much yet. We've got a whiteboard there. God wants to write a story of your life this year. We've just started. Question number one, are you ready for a king? Second question. The second question is, are you ready for his orders? Kings give orders. When Arthur called, Lance, called Gawain in, he didn't say to him, Hey, what are you doing this week? Got any free time? Got this job, looking for the right person. How does it sound to you? He, kings don't do that. Kings give orders. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus giving orders. It's interesting. He's never revealed himself as king, but he always acts like one. Notice that? He just, he just commands. He commands, he acts like he owns the place, always. He's never asking permission. And he gives specific orders, he gives general orders. I, I want you to think of this. The very first time we see Jesus with the disciples, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, he sees Peter and Andrew there fishing, and what's he say to them? Follow me. Command. Not like, hey, what are you doing? Let me give you an invitation. It's a command. Follow me. 
When he goes on further, he sees James and John. They're in the boat. They've got the, the family commercial fishing, fishing business there. You know, Zebedee and Sons. Hey, Pops, how would you feel if... No. Follow me. It's chapter 2. Come sees Matthew as tax collecting booth. He's got a great job. Good 403B. It's like, hey, follow me. You get to, to chapter 6. He's feeding the 5,000. He says to his men, go find out how much food we have. I need something to work with here. When you get to chapter 10, rich young ruler, he didn't say, well, here's something to think about. He says, go sell everything. Come follow me. When you get to the, end of, when you get to the story today, he needs to go get the, two colt, get the colt. He didn't say like, hey, you free? Like, he just gives this weird assignment. He didn't explain it. Hey, go in the city, look for a colt. You'll recognize he's tied up. When you get there, just take them. If they hassle you, tell them I need it. Okay. Kings give orders. At the end of the story, last day when Jesus leaves to return to his father, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. I'm the king. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's not a request, it's a command. You see, kings give orders. They give specific orders to specific people like we just saw. Gawain, Peter, John, the rich young woman, but they also give general orders, right? In my kingdom, this is the way I want it. And so we've seen that Jesus give general orders. He's talked to me, he said, hey, seek first my kingdom. If you're a king, kingdom follower, top priority, seek first my kingdom. He's talked to us and he said things like, lay not up treasures on earth, lay them up in heaven, invest in my kingdom. He said things like, hey, if you want to be the greatest, you need to become the least of all, so start serving. So there's, there's specific commands he gives to individuals. There's general commands he gives to all of us. And so the question is, are you ready for his orders? See, as we, as we go into a new year, uh, one thing is that Jesus this year is going to be giving you some new orders. And I know what they are. Uh, for some of you, his orders are going to be about his relationship with you. For some of you, he's going to say, you know what? This is the year my order to you is you need to pursue me. And so what I want is I want you to spend some time with me regularly every week so we can develop that relationship and you can connect. For some of you, it's going to say, hey, you know, church for you, weekends have been a hit or miss. My command this year is I want you there. I want you there because you're going to grow there. You're going to meet me there. I'm going to speak to you there. And I can't speak to you if you're not there. My order is to be there. For some of you, it's going to be, hey, it's time for you to join a life group. You've been holding out on me. I have been telling you this for a while, and you've been blowing me off because you're afraid it'll be a lousy group or the desserts will be bad. And it's time to kind of like, like trust me in this. This is going to open up new doors and windows for life and growth in your life, and you need this, this is going to be ordered. For others, it's going to be a relational issue. For some of you, it's going to be, it's going to talk about your marriage. He says, the command is going to be focus on your marriage this year. Fix it. Get the help you need. Make it a priority. Figure it out. I'll help you. For some of you, it's going to be, uh, hey, you're working too many hours and you're neglecting your kids. You only got them for five more years. I want you to rearrange your schedule and reprioritize your life. And I want you to invest in your kids. Your first calling as a parent is to be discipling those kids. You'd be investing in those kids. For some of you, it's going to be an issue of sin, like flat out disobedience. Or some area of your life, maybe it's integrity issue. Maybe it's a sexual issue. Maybe it's a greed issue. Maybe it's a, a forgiveness issue. And you know what Jesus is. You know what the commands are. The king has given the orders. It's very clear, but you've blown them off. For, for some of you, it's going to be ministry related. That Jesus is going to say, look, when I called you into my kingdom, you're to be part of my task force to unleash the movement. And I need you to be using your gifts that I've given you. You need to invest your time and energy and gifts to advance the kingdom. And that's what he's going to talk to you about. For some of you, it's going to be financial. For some of you, your lives are a wreck because you've overspent. Your lives are in deep debt. And you keep hoping it changes. It's not changing. And strangling your marriage. It's strangling your life. It's causing you to worry. And his command to you this year is going to be, fix it. Take Financial Peace University, learn how to do this, bring your finances under my leadership. For some of you, it's going to be in the area of generosity. You know, I just talked about as a church, what a great job we did in December, and it's so awesome. It just doesn't fall out of that. But 
but here's what I know. As, as a pastor, I've chosen at this church, like, I don't know who gives what. I've chosen that. A lot of my pastor friends say, you're an idiot. You can't shepherd, you cannot shepherd people well. It's important. They may be right. There may come a time when I change that. I don't know. I've always done that because I just don't trust myself. I want to treat everyone the same. I don't want any partiality. I don't really like, so that's why I've done it. So I don't know. But what I do know is I know the number of people have given and how much is given. And as I look down that list, what I know is at Rocky Peak, there are a lot of people who are blowing Jesus off on this issue. There, Jesus talked a lot about this. Lay not up treasure on earth, lay it up in heaven. What he's saying is invest in my kingdom. Invest in things that last. Right? And he says that if you're not faithful in little, you won't be faithful in much. And in context, the little is finances. And yet, the reality is, is I look at the, our financial records, not knowing who gives what, just looking at the number of records, the amount, it's like, this is not right. There are a lot of people who are king followers, call themselves king followers at Rocky Peak, who are not following in their finances. It's not right. It's hypocritical. It's Hosanna. It's blessed to be the name of the Lord on Sunday, and it's disobedience the rest of our week in this area. I could go on and on with different areas, ministry, relationships, sin issues, finances. We go on and on. And here's what I want you to catch. All I'm doing right now is throwing out examples because I have no idea what his orders for you are this year, right? Like the only thing you need to be listening to right now is for God's voice, not my voice. I'm just giving you examples but what matters is that what is the Holy Spirit saying to you this year? What is, it could be totally different from anything I said. But here's what I know. Jesus is a king, and king gets orders. And so what are the orders for you? Because he has a future for you that's amazing. He's got a future for this church that's amazing. The calling on this church is to unleash a movement where together, this place in time, you and me, we've been called together to fulfill the Great Commission. We're here to take the message of Jesus out. That will not happen. People will not come to Christ if our lives are not transformed. The only way people come to Jesus, or the primary way, is when they see transformed lives. And they say, I want what that person has. And that kind of transformation only comes when someone surrenders to the leadership of King Jesus. And until then, we're just fakers, right? We're fakers. And so Jesus has a, a view of your life. He's got a plan for your life. He has said, I have come to give you life and give it what? Abundantly. Now, do you believe it or not? If you believe it, you will repent and follow the king. If you don't believe it, you won't. It's as simple as that. And so as we enter in this year, I am so excited for this year. I'm excited what God's going to do in our lives as a church. I'm excited what he's going to do in life individually. I'm excited for the passion he's going to release. I'm excited for the, the calling on our, on our church. I'm excited what he's going to do in and through us. But it only happens as, as a church. And I mean all of us. We bow the knee. We bow the knee to King Jesus. We let him take that sword. We let him knight us on either side. We live now for him. He's our priority. He's our passion. We follow where he leads. And as we follow, he will do an amazing thing in 2014. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, we are just excited to be here and, and just really to be kind of opening up this last week of your life and seeing who you are, what it means to follow in new ways. And God, a whole series has been leading up to this, this last week. And so we pray that you would meet us in just a powerful way. We pray that you would come every week. You would speak, you would lead, you would guide, you would heal, you would provide. We pray you'd teach us and train us. We pray you'd shepherd us as our, our teacher. And we pray you'd rule us as our king. And you would lead us into your kingdom that as your word says, is righteousness, is joy, and is peace. We pray our lives will be transformed. We pray that we would be used to extend your kingdom. We pray that eternity will be different because we live together this year. And as we come now to worship you as our king, as we bring you our offerings to establish a place where the message of your rule goes out of and where people come under your reign, 
We pray that you'd bless this offering and use it to expand your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This will be my joy to say your will, your way. What I found in my life is in those hardest times of obeying the king, uh, it's really not like that. Uh, that comes after. Uh, in those hardest times, those moments of surrender, when he asks his hearts, ask him to trust him in an area that's really hard. Uh, at those moments, it, it's not a moment of joy. It's a moment of sorrow. It's a moment of pain. It's a moment of tears. It's a moment of great grief. It's a moment of death. But here's the thing, as it says in the Psalms, that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And those who will die to themselves for Jesus will rise with him to a new joy, a joy that nothing else can replace. It's what Jesus called the living waters that would flow out of our life. We won't always get it right this year. We will fall, we will stumble, we will fail, just like the disciples the thing that I love about the disciples is they just kept coming back for more. They just kept coming back, sorry Jesus, under your leadership again. May this be a year where we're under the leadership of King Jesus. There's times we'll stumble, we will fall, we will fail. But let's be a church that pursues him, comes under his leadership, bows the knee, gets it right. When we fail, we, get, we come back, we get it right. Amen? Amen. May this be a year where he rules over our church, rules over our life. May this be a year of no regrets. May it be a year that at the end of the year we look back and say we walk well with our king. And because of that, our lives were changed. Our lives were transformed. Our families got healthier. Our marriages got healthier. Our finances got healthier. We had a message to share. Other people came. They caught the vision. They came under his leadership. They came to salvation because as a church, we're pursuing him together. Amen? May that be your experience this year. May we all come under the leadership of King Jesus. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Have a great couple of weeks. See you then.